Talking with Tech is sponsored by Q Interactive, Pearson's iPad-based system for testing, scoring, and reporting. Experience unheard of efficiency and client engagement with 20 top tests, all delivered digitally. You can sign up for a free 30-day trial at pearsonclinical.com TWT18. Um, after that 30 days, if you want to go ahead and use it, call 1-800-627-7271 and give them promo code TWT18 to get 10% off the Q Interactive license. Uh, this is only good through the end of the year, December 31st, 2018, so try it now. Welcome back once again to Talking With Tech. My name is Luke Stuber, joined as usually by Mr. Chris Begay. How are you? <laughs> I'm great, great. Happy that we're all here today. Yeah, this is exciting. I know. I I, I mean, I, I've sort of been the as usually one recently, and um, I, I miss talking to everyone, and uh, I hope some of you like hearing from me sometimes. Uh, but more importantly, we also have Rachel Madel. How are you? I'm doing really good. How are you guys doing today? Good. It's uh, bizarrely not hot and humid and horrible in Pittsburgh uh, where I am here, so I think we're turning towards winter. How about uh, how about you folks? You know, I really miss the East Coast for this time of year. I like, I always love California. I feel like everyone's like, the weather's so sunny and great. But in September and October, I really miss being on the East Coast. So I'm really jealous of you guys, of you guys in Ohio and Pennsylvania right now. Yeah. Do you notice I'm wearing a sweater, right? Because it is sweater weather here. Oh, man. I know. I can wear like <laughs> cool boots and like drink fun pumpkin lattes. But yeah, it's fine. We can still do those things out here, but it's like 85 degrees right now. So, <laughs> not this- in Pittsburgh, I think it's more about pumpkin beer. Um, <laughs> well, we um, we, so we posted a question to our Facebook group, uh, just asking about thoughts on on AAC and in IEPs, right? So today we want to talk about that. We're gonna dive pretty specifically into goal writing um, around AAC, but but also the IEP generally. But first things first, we should probably define some terms, right? So a lot of you are probably familiar, but Chris, expert in the schools, what is an IEP? An IEP is an individualized education plan or individualized education program that is typically reviewed once a year, although it can be reviewed any time within that year, um, uh, that includes different members. So there's a case manager, there is a the parent or guardian, or sometimes both, like both parents. There is the, the administration person, administrator. Uh, there is the... A speech therapist, usually, if there's a speech language goals, but not always. Uh, and then any other related service staff that might be there. Great. As long as we're defining terms, right? When I was working in the schools a lot, we also would be doing things like converting IFSPs and, and all these other acronyms. Like, what's the difference? Are there different, um, different terms for different stages of the education journey? That's exactly it. An IFSP is for uh, students in early intervention. So it's a family service plan, individualized family service plan. And it's more about how to help the entire family work with that student at the early intervention. And early intervention can be different on, based on the state that you're in. You know, some states it's birth to two, other places it's birth to three. But the idea is that once you, have got, you are part of the public school system, you're working with an IEP. Okay. So I can say from my experience that just conceptually the whole structure of IEPs, while it is mandated by the IDEA Act, right, and other things, is highly variable from district to district. And then a second comment would be that the way that AAC is approached in IEPs is incredibly super duper highly variable from district to district and person to person. And so I guess we want to, to, to talk about some of those things. First of all, I mean, when would AAC be even introduced in, into a student's journey, right? Are we looking back to the IFSP? 
Maybe, depending on the student, right? I mean, sadly, I'd probably assume that many kids, unless they have some sort of early diagnosis, uh, medical diagnosis, that we know that they're going to need it right away, I would imagine most kids don't get any sort of AAC or it's low-tech AAC at best in the early intervention stages. That's probably changing over the years, and you're finding more and more that are starting out with you know, more robust language systems early on, but I still say it's, you know, again, speculating here. It's not like I have some sort of data, just speculating that it's uh, not as frequently implemented in EI. What do you think, Rachel? You know, this reminds me of a quote that I often cite, and I'm so mad that I can't think of the author right now, but it, it talks about AAC and it says AAC is not a last resort intervention. Um, and I think that idea is so powerful because, I think that there's generally speaking this idea that, okay, like we're really going to push for kids to imitate words. And when that doesn't work, then maybe we'll try signs. And when, you know, maybe signs aren't working, then we'll, you know, switch over to PECs. And then when we feel like PECs maybe isn't the right solution, then we'll, you know, introduce a high tech system. And we know that, you know, AAC should start being implemented really young. And we've had episodes on that. And so I just think that's really important to not look at it as a last resort intervention. Um, we know how powerful it can be from very early on. So um, anyway, that was what I was reminded of when we started talking about IFSPs. And, you know, unfortunately, I do think that it's not introduced until a lot later on in the game like after kind of these other options have been exhausted. And I think that's just kind of SLP is not really having the education and the knowledge to know how to implement AAC, you know, and I think that that's something that we should start tackling, you know, in grad school programs and, and make more people comfortable with AAC. Because I think generally speaking, the sense that I get when I'm talking with SLPs that aren't specializing in AAC, they just feel very intimidated. They're like, well, I need a specialist. I need somebody else to like make these decisions. I'm like, listen, no, no, you don't. Um, you know, we can start incorporating especially low tech supports so early on and getting comfortable with those high tech supports. Wow. That was like mic drop. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Well, and I mean, this is often where a lot of people are, you know, a lot of families are first exposed to the, the concept of AAC, right? Like not everybody has the means to have private assessments done and these sorts of things. So it really, I mean, there's a big kind of responsibility there to be catching these kids and starting them on their journey earlier. Which brings me to another question. How are students identified to determine to be eligible for services? And in my experience, um, if there is a clear access need, right, secondary to like an orthopedic impairment or like, you know, kids that cannot access a touch device, they'll be identified often sooner, right? Rather than a kid that maybe is physically, you know, has no impairments, but is just sort of a late talker, right? That's, that's often what I hear at that age. Is that similar? Well, Lucas, I want to clarify what your question is here. Because when you say eligible, I think that steers the conversation in two different directions. Do you mean, how is someone found eligible for as a student with a disability that has a a right to get services in the first place? Or do you mean eligible to have an augmentative communication device? I mean, they've already been found eligible as a student with a disability, but they get a communication device. What did you mean? Yeah. By so I, I guess I've always thought of eligibility as just being the blanket, can you receive services with then AAC being specified as like a unnecessary support? Um, I hadn't thought of that in two different ways before, but that's a good point. We should make that clear. So what I was thinking of was, um, you know, in that case where you have the four-year-old, the five-year-old in preschool who isn't developing language at the typical rate, 
great or maybe does not have language. I mean, I have heard people say to me, it is difficult to find those children eligible for services in the absence of any other sort of category. Chris is giving, this is a great look. If you can see right now, he's sort of like, <laughs> people say that. Hey, yeah, I'm, just, but I mean, I'm just reporting from the field. A way a student would be found eligible for the student with a disability is that you would do some sort of assessment and then the a team would get together, an eligibility team, included, that also includes the parents and it's very similar to an IEP team. Usually it's the same members plus the people who have, may have the assessments and then you compare the results of those assessments with the definitions laid out in the law about all these different disability categories. If a student was completely nonverbal by four or five, it's very likely they would be eligible, uh, they would be found eligible as for services as a student with a speech and language impairment, right? Yeah, I would certainly hope so. So standardized assessments are our friends. And, you know, one thing, and this is sort of bizarre to say, but uh, a luxury of, of our specific uh, area of this field is that typically eligibility actually isn't a huge question in my experience. You know, if you have a student that simply has not developed language for, or just, you know, can't produce it for, for motor reasons or whatever, I mean, that's, um, that's usually pretty obvious. So once someone's found eligible, then the first thing that happens is that there's a certain number of days that you have to then write an IEP. And that IEP team meets, you know, a case manager develops the IEP, and then you start to write the IEP, um, IEP team meets to then kind of go over it and, and put that in place. And so you asked, uh, Lucas, when you started this conversation, you said, what is an IEP? And I think then you'd have to break down following that train of thought, you have to break down well, what are the components of an IEP? Like, what do you find in that IEP? And so one of the first parts of that is called uh, the PLAF, the present levels of academic and functional performance, also known as PLAF, <laughs> uh, which is a fun to say, right? <laughs> PLAF. It sounds like, like some weird, like sensory Play-Doh or something. <laughs> yeah. But what it is, is where you take those initial assessments and then you kind of document them. And then as the years go on with the writing the IEP, this is where a student is currently functioning. And the idea is here you lay out what the student's strengths are and where they need to improve. And that where they need to improve then becomes a goal. And that's where you put the goals, which is kind of what we were going to talk about today is about how do you write AAC in the PLEPF? How do you write it in the goals? Do you put it in accommodations? Uh, just to kind of round that all out, accommodations are another part of the IEP, accommodations and modifications, where you list what does the student absolutely need to have to guarantee a free appropriate public education. They have to have this or we're going to be not denying them free appropriate public education known as FAPE. And so those are often items or, or um different actions you need to take to uh, to ensure that the kids get what they need. And I guess the last part, I mean, there's, all, there's lots of other parts, but last parts that might be relevant for this discussion is the idea of services. You know, that uh, often speech language services are written on a page and that's where you get like 60 minutes a week or whatever it is. Well, you just, you just sparked something in my head that I always um, wonder about and would love to talk to you guys about as far as the services page, because, you know, we know these kids, they will get speech and language services, right? Um, you know, if they're qualifying for AAC or, you know, AAC is in the, in the discussion, then we know that there is a speech and language delay at the very least. Um, so that's assumed, but how do we incorporate the training piece? So I'm often talking to my families about getting some type of AAC consulting um, written in the IEP. And so I, I'm from Pennsylvania and I was doing a lot of stuff in the schools in Pennsylvania 
And then I moved to California and I feel like things are so different here. And I'm also in private practice in California. So it's very hard, you know, kind of just coming into some IEP meetings and not really having my hand in the schools, but kind of. Um, So it's just things are very different. Is that something that every person in every state can advocate for is having AAC consulting in the IEP? It's an interesting question, right? And it's um, it's one that's specifically relevant to AAC in so much as we have a lot of research that shows that one of the biggest predictors of adoption of AAC, right, is training of the family and the caregivers and the rest of the circle of support. Um, so for that reason, uh, it's particularly relevant in our field that that is a need. You know, and then a secondary reason is is simple poverty of time, right? I mean, people in the schools, there's not enough time to provide the adequate amount of modeling and direct intervention that um, we also know to be a predictor of success. To your point, um, you know, IDEA requires uh, that the device be funded by the school, but as, which everyone hopefully seems to know, um, but also that the school funds adequate supports for school personnel um, in order to support implementation. And that can be defined in a number of different ways, right? Um, and largely depends on the size of the district. Uh, you know, I mean, certainly uh, one thing that they will do is provide trainings. You know, smaller districts that maybe don't have a dedicated consultant will bring someone in. I've served that role many times. But one way or another, I mean, as a parent, certainly um, you'd want to be in a position to advocate for those necessary supports, because I would say they're of equal or sometimes even greater importance than what's happening around the device. Exactly. And that's what I do advocate to my parents. I say, listen, like you have this IEP meeting, you need to fight for the training that we need to support this device. I mean, I don't understand how these districts are getting away with doing a whole assessment, getting the AAC assessment delivering a child a device and then just basically dropping it in their lap and not teaching anybody how to use it. Um, They're not teaching the parents how to use it. They're not teaching the SLP in the schools how to use it. So nobody knows how to use it oftentimes. And so they find me and they're like, oh, we need help with this device that no one knows how to use. And it's just crazy to me. That's not written into the IEP. And, and, And I feel like it's not being written in because parents don't know to advocate for that. They don't know how important that is. So that's like the first thing that I talk about when we're talking IEPs. I'm like, do you have any type of AAC consultation or anything like that in your IEP? because that's a necessary part of this whole process. Yeah, so it's really an interesting question, Rachel, because, you know, I work in the schools and I definitely would advocate to have what a student needs written in there. Uh, Lucas mentioned IDEA and the definition of assistive technology is split up into two parts, the assistive technology device, which is obvious. We're talking about AAC devices. That's an assistive technology device. And then AAC service, which would be or I'm sorry, AT device and AT service. That'd be the second part of the definition. And a service would be, again, related to an AAC device, would be, what do you do with that device? A part of the definition specifically says training, right? So I want that to be written in as well. But this is a story that just happened to me. A parent advocated for it to be written in. It got written in. And I think that's another question we can come back to is, well, how do you write it in? And where do you write it? Because someone... Uh, an outside advocate said, you got to have it written in. you got to have this AAC training and coaching written in. It was. And then they met with me and I said, um, I just want to be clear. What do you think I'm going to do as the AAC coaching person versus the on-site SLP? Like, what do you think that person does? And the parent kind of looked at me like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, what, what is the difference between what the speech therapist does and what you as an AAC coach does? And 
It's like, what if you were in a school district that didn't have an AAC coach like me? It would just be speech therapy, right? But it'd be what the speech therapist does at different parts of the job, right? Sometimes the speech therapist would be meeting with the parent and coaching them. And sometimes the speech therapist would be providing direct services to the student. And sometimes they'd be be doing both at once. Like, I'm going to provide direct therapy and you watch me as I do this, you know? So it's a kind of a convoluted question of who does it? Where does it get written? How often? I mean, how much coaching do you need. That could be different uh, for, for different stages. So um, yes, maybe it should be there. I think we might all agree that, but then it gets really murky really fast about how do you actually write it in and who does it. I was just going to say, I, I think it just lends itself to a bigger question of, I mean, it's so individualized. So say you have a child in a district where the SLP knows a ton about AAC and, you know, they've worked with Proloquo and they've worked with LAMP and they've got devices funded, you know, and they feel very, you know, confident. That's very different than a school district who has hired a fresh grad and who has no AAC experience. Um, and so it's just, it's really challenging to figure out what's the optimal level, right? And we know that, you know, there's there's a lot of services that need to be had and there's not a lot of staff to be, you know, doing those services. We, we know that, right? Everyone's kind of has a lot of kids on their caseload and a lot of work, there's a lot of work to be done. So how can we try to mediate that and get the children what they need? all while managing all these other things that are at play. And I think it's just, it's really challenging. But I think one of the important things to remember is it has to be a coaching model. And I love, Chris, that you're calling it an AAC coach. Uh, I'm going to start calling myself an AAC coach uh, because everyone calls me a consultant. Um, And I just love the, I mean, we talk so much about coaching on this podcast and it's so true. Well, where do you think it gets written in? I mean, does, does, should, it, should it be written as a service, you know, AAC coaching as a service? And is that someone different than the speech therapist or is it the speech therapist and they just do have two hats, you know? Um, no, it's, well, it's hard. I do think it needs to be, it needs to be designated as something separate, right? Um, because I think that there's this idea, especially with parents and teachers, that they get twice a week for 30 minutes. That's their speech therapy time. Um, So if you spend one of the 30 minutes just sitting and talking to the teacher, I mean, while I think that's totally fine and acceptable, because I think that's the way that we should be providing our direct service is training the circle of support around a child, regardless if they're using AAC. Um, But I do think that there's this stigma attached, like they're not getting their service. Why are you talking to the teacher? You're not talking, you're not working with the kid. Um, I've had, you know, situations at schools like that, where I spent those minutes reinforcing a concept with the teacher or planning ahead for today's circle time so that that the teacher's prepared to, you know, maybe give a, give some prep time for the students so that they're able to participate effectively. Um, I mean, I think those teachings are so valuable, but I've had administrators even who have questioned what I'm doing. So-and-so is saying that you're not pulling him twice a week um, or you're not providing the right amount of minutes. And so I just think it gets, like you said, murky. And I think that one way to, at least in the short term, distinguish that is having something separate written in the IEP. Now, who does that? Good question, right? And I know that some districts, they don't have an AAC specialist or an AAC coach, if you will. So it just gets really, it gets complicated. 
Well, if I, if I could jump in a little bit on, on this. So there are actually some structures built into the IEP that are helpful in this regard. So um, one of them is the distinction uh, in service time made between direct service and related services, right? A direct service line could have time that is literally intervention performed by the SLP, whereas a related service time, which I have always uh, indicated as augmentative communication consultant, or we could say coach is totally fine, that would be the line item that would be dedicated uh, towards training teachers and staff, those sorts of things that are not one-on-one contact with the student. Whether both roles are performed by the same person is totally fine, but I always advocate for parents and educators to have both of those because what that does is that that gets you more time no matter what, right? Um, there, you know, there's more supports in terms of time, maybe more supports in terms of personnel. And then there's another section that's the supplementary aids and services, right? Um, which that's where I would like to see an AAC device specified, right? But when I say specify, there are some do's and don'ts about that. And so just very briefly, um, I would say do not specify a specific system or app, um, you know, anything like that that would be locking you in program for a whole host of reasons, not least of which being that it might not be the right fit. You know, do specify other accessories and things that might be necessary, such as a key guard or, or switches or eye gaze access, anything else that's going to be required to make that, um, make that device useful. I've seen situations where speech generating devices can't go home at night, right? So this is one place where you could advocate that you know, this is a speech generating device that is available to travel, you know, or the opposite, where maybe the family will be supplying the device and you can encode that there, saying that this, the school is also to use the one that is being used at home, because I've seen it happen where that one comes from home, there's a different SGD that's in the classroom, and then this, this, this you know, student's learning two different systems. I think that's an awesome, you know, do and do not list. A question maybe to tease out a little bit is, if you're going to list it on supplemental aids and services or wherever you're listed as AAC coaching or consulting or whatever the, the separate is, how do you determine how much time that should be and who are you providing it to? And is, is, and is that different amounts of time for different people? Meaning, is the teacher get a certain amount of time or a parent gets this different block of time versus assistants that get a different block of time? Or are they all the same? And how much? You know, I, that is a, a question you know, there's some people that it might require five hours of training and as others might require 20 hours of, and again, I'm, I'm using training, I mean coaching, you know, five hours of coaching and others 20 hours of coaching. And like you said, Rachel, depending on the, their prior experience, it might be like, they don't really need training. They, this kid, luckily enough, is in a classroom that these people have been through it for the last three years. They know what they're doing. You know what I mean? They don't need training. Exactly. And it's the one thing that's not, we're not looking at the child for that answer, right? It's about the circle of support. And so it's so hard, especially because with high turnover in school districts, it can change. So you could have that like sweet setup where your teacher's awesome, teacher knows AAC, SLP is awesome, she knows AAC too. And then all of a sudden next year, teacher and SLP are gone. And we're like, you know, maybe we didn't need as much training for that, you know, in that IEP. And now it's like we're starting from ground zero. So it's just, it's really, it's a challenge to try to figure out how to specify it all and what's the optimal amount. Oh, I'll throw one more wrench in there, Rachel. How about that you, you provided it? I was the AAC coach and I provided the 60 minutes of training that was necessary. And then a person leaves, you know, because... Yeah. Wait, wait a second. I did the training. It's right here. Like it's the date I did it, but now the person left. And so it's, there's, it's really hard. Lucas, you used the perfect word. It's really hard to encode this into an IEP. There, there has to be some level of like professionalism that says, look, I know that that person left. And as soon as that person left, 
they got to call me back and say, hey, that person left because how, how would I know necessarily that, that a person has left? I've seen execution be widely va- uh, variable, right? Because I've seen numbers all over the board, depending on the district. Do, do you have, is there a rule of thumb out there that, that governs this? No, but I like uh, maybe an idea that you could have uh, a monthly touch base or a weekly training of some sort, a weekly coaching. Um, but that is significant numbers based on how many kids there are out there that would need or need that, you know. In another respect, in the school districts, we have uh, what we call instructional facilitators for technology. They're not related to AAC or special ed at all. They just are people that are in the schools that help teachers implement technology, right? And they don't, there's never a like, a kid needs 30 minutes with the technology resource teacher or the instructional facilitator for technology so they can learn their keyboarding skills. Like it's part of the case manager just needs to own it and learn it, you know? Um, and so I could kind of see that sort of model as well is that uh, maybe it's not written in so much as that it's just something that is completely supported by the school district. But that's dangerous because what if it's not, you know? And that was kind of leading into my thought. You know, it feels like we need to think bigger scale, right? We're kind of thinking like, okay, Johnny's in classroom A and we need to teach his teacher and his aides how to use his AAC. You know, we need to think like school-wide. District How are we training everybody about AAC? Because that's when I think you make the most impact. I I don't think that's necessarily the reality in a lot of the school districts. Um, But I think that, you know, on this podcast, we talk about the ideals and what we hope for and what we see the future of AAC becoming. I see it as a place where we're teaching everybody. You know, because everybody can make an impact with a child who is using an AAC device. And I just think that if the school district's supporting it, if the entire school is supporting it, it it helps the child, but it also helps foster the sense of community um, and belonging for children with complex communication needs. And so, I mean, that's the ideal. Uh, How do we get there? I mean, that's a little bit harder, but that's my hope is that we can figure out ways to, to make it larger scale. Yes, it's a culture, right? You're building a culture and you're building a mindset. And that can happen one student at a time, but it's so much better when it's everybody, right? Yeah. And that's why I loved the specific language approach with Eric Enger, because I feel like that is something that really benefited his his district was, you know, kind of taking an approach like, you know, one size fits most. And I think that there that's the huge benefit in that is that everybody is starting to be exposed to and learn about AAC. And so I think that that, that, that episode, if you haven't listened to that episode, you have to go back and listen to it. Um, it's really changed a lot for me and recommended it to a lot of SLPs and other AAC specialists. And it's just, it's a really interesting concept. And I'm just really, I'm so excited, Chris, that you had him on. It was such a, <laughs> that, such one's, a cool that one's still controversial for me. <laughs> good, good one. First of all, I just want to say, I totally agree with everything you're saying. To me, that that highlights the need to go ahead and put a time on that line of the related services, no matter what, because you can go out and do it with the peers or whatever. Just make sure that you don't sort of shortchange yourself in terms of the time that that you're able to spend with the student by not putting enough in at the beginning, right? But we we did say we'd talk about goals, right? So um, just briefly looking at the legal piece of it, right? So AAC was, was encoded into the IDEA Act in 2004, so it wasn't going all the way back to the original one. But the educational accommodations around AAC that are encoded there are not just around educational outcomes. They're also around social interaction, language and cognitive development, 
and participation in what they call activities of daily living, which is basically all the fun stuff. So I just want to sort of open up by saying that goals don't always need to be strictly around um, academic performance, right? They can be around a whole host of other things. But they're required to cover what is to be learned in a 12-month period. They have to accurately and objectively represent the present levels of the students and the growth trajectory, um, and then be stated in measurable terms, which we'll get to, right? So there's a lot of um, schema out there. Like I was always taught SMART goals, uh, which was specific, measurable, actionable, relevant, and timely, right? But there's some specific to our field. I don't know. How do you go through the process of evaluating the quality of a goal? Oh, boy. This is a big can of worms because goals are so... um, it's so difficult to see a goal that is so specifically measured. And uh, let me give you a quick story here because I think this helps to illustrate it and maybe a strategy that people can use. A few years ago, I had the idea that maybe we could help people write their goals and better yet collect data on their goals by using Google Forms, right? And so at two schools, I got to sort of chair committees where I got a couple volunteers of teachers together, not specific to AAC, just we're going to collect data using uh, Google Forms. In order to collect data using Google Forms, we got to put the goals into the Google Form. And as they were doing this, Uh, and then trying to come up with how they were going to measure the goals using the Google Forms, what came out with every single teacher at both schools was, yeah, my goals are really hard to measure. You know, I'm trying to measure all these different aspects all at once, as opposed to trying to whittle it down and being very specific about one specific aspect uh, that I'm trying to measure. And that, I think, is kind of a global thing I see across the scale, is that we're measuring all sorts of different stuff within goals rather than just one thing. So my, my, my tip, my strategy is try and see if you can take your goal that you're writing and put it into a Google form and see if you can come up with a way to measure it using the Google form. Because if you can do that, then you know you've written a very measurable goal. Interesting. I haven't ever tried that. <laughs> when you're thinking about it, you got to pull something in. So I'm trying to think of some of the goals that I've seen that are great and some of the goals that I've seen that are challenging. And of course, I'm thinking of all the fun, challenging ones off you know, first, that's, that's always where my mind goes. But like, um, you know, one goal that I saw a lot in the schools, for example, was student will express their wants and needs using an AAC device and four out of five observed opportunity. Like what's, what's wrong with that goal? I know something that's wrong with it. (laughs) We use language for so many other things beyond just requesting our wants and needs, um, which we talk a lot about on this podcast, but you know, we use language for so many different reasons. And I think that that's the number one thing I see with goals is kids or with AAC in general is that kids get stuck with requesting. They get stuck just asking for the things that they want or they need. And I think that's where we kind of stop. It's like, well, they got their basic needs met. Like, they're good. No, they're not good. They need to see language models of all types of different things like commenting and asking questions and protesting and, you know, all of these things. So I think that that's something that I always am sure to write into all of my goals. It never, it might include requesting, but it never ends with just requesting. Um, I think it's really important to expand, um, especially for, you know, clinicians who might not know a lot about AAC, making sure that we include those in the goals. And I do a lot of work working in collaboration with school SLPs for the kids that I see privately. And, you know, I think that everyone for the most part has a really genuine interest to learn and to expand their their knowledge base about AAC. It's usually the, the thing I start recommending right off the bat is like, okay, he's good at requesting on that device, but like, how can we create opportunities for him to use language for a variety of different reasons? 
Yeah, absolutely. What else is something, wrong? <laughs> something, what else is wrong? Good. Well, something else I think that happens quite frequently is when an AAC device is implemented, the speech therapist or the team in general immediately throws out everything they know about language. It's just language therapy. It's the right. same as language therapy. I mean, it's not the same exactly because you have all of those different competencies that we that we've talked about in the past, and that we did the uh, we did an exceptional ed course on it. If you want to go back and, and and participate in that course, we did one on kind of the modern era of all the different competencies, the AAC competencies. So it's a little bit different, but really, the therapy you're doing, the language goals that you are writing, are language goals. Think of them in that regard. And so that that leads me to another question: is do you need to put the AAC device in the goal at all? You know, I, I really don't like to because we, just like Rachel was just saying, I mean, we communicate not only all these different manners, but also across all these different modalities. And why would we not honor a student verbalizing a request or making a gesture request or these different things? I mean, we, we don't want to limit their means of communication. And we also don't want to create a, a, a negative sense uh, around the AAC, right, when we're starting out, right? Like, no, no, use your talker. We knew what you said, but use your talker. Um, I agree. I don't think we should be, you know, having kids say something verbally and then like having them go say it again on the device. Can you imagine how frustrating that would be if you like kept saying things in different, in different ways and people were like, no, but say it, say it in this way. Um, but I feel that way with paperwork sometimes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but what I was going to say is just to play devil's advocate, I feel like what about the kid who, whose device is sitting in their backpack all day long? Having a goal that specifically says will use their speech generating device, I think is important, right? So, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I've walked into schools and been like, where's the device? But and I was like, oh, though, it's dead we, in their backpack. What, around that, what, what I would like to do is actually write more of a goal directed at the operational competence side of things, right? And actually, we, we had all these people that, um, that chimed in on Facebook, and I really like this comment from, from Ariella around writing an operational goal for, for first-time AAC users. And it really can be just, you know, student will have their AAC device on them, and it will be charged and, and that sort of thing as a way of sort of learning those intro tools, but also around accountability for making sure that that's happening. Right. Yep. Yeah. I think that's the only time I really like seeing it in the goal is when it's an operational goal. Rachel, what you're saying it makes a lot of sense. I think that can be hit in the accommodations, which, you know, here's the, here's a list of the accommodations and it says they have to use their AAC device and that could just be just as powerful as the goal. The thing that always comes to mind when I think about putting the AAC device in the goal is that that's not how we write it for a writing goal or for an ARTIC goal. You know, you don't say using your articulators, you'll make the R sound, right? You just will make a R sound, you know? And so I think why would you throw in the, the modality in the goal as well? Just because we can, you know, and it yeah. doesn't make sense. Using a Bic pen, student will write names. Exactly. <laughs> No, you do that. On, on Facebook, there were some good ones here. Rachel, I think you wanted to mention. One of our listeners, and I can't find who it is, of course, she talked about doing a goal for every, oh, here it is. It's Caitlin. We record AAC systems in the special factors page of our IEPs and add it under accommodations. We write goals to each of the four competency areas. I add my ed specialist as a person responsible on all goals to pr promote generalization. Um, so that's another whole thing. That's an old, how a whole can of worms. Who's responsible for the goals, right? You know, we know communication happens all day long with a variety of communication partners. Um, so who's responsible. Um, and that oftentimes is something that comes up in meetings. And that's something that I'm very clear about that, like, we need everybody to be supporting the device. And, and I like the idea of, of 
thinking about those four competencies and how can we incorporate those when we're thinking kind of big picture for a child. Right. I like using those. Basically, what they're saying is use that as that a rubric to help you develop the goals is think of those competencies and make sure you're considering each one of those when you're writing the goals. Yep. It makes a lot of sense. You know, Tandy actually wrote in our Facebook group, kind of similar to the point that I was making. I write academic goals that state using AAC student will. I do this in every goal. And then we have language goals too. I want it all over the IEP so that doesn't get lost and sit in the closet or backpack. I think that when you're thinking about teachers and SLPs, all these professionals working in the schools, And I remember when I was that professional working in the schools, you have a stack of 40 IEPs or 50 IEPs. You know, you're just like going through and you're like, okay, what are the services? What are the goals? Um, You know, not to say that you don't look at the entire IEP, but I think that that's what stands out. And I think that that is why I feel like I was more inclined to, to to say it in the goals is because I feel like, yes, it could be in the accommodation section, but like, what if they miss the accommodation section? Um, And I think that having it in the goals is like, I remember like, in the beginning of the school year, I'd be like, okay, where are all my goals? And I have this huge spreadsheet with all my students and all my goals. And, you know, every, I mean, obviously I would be incorporating AAC across the board, but I do think for, you know, clinicians and teachers and things like that, we have this laser focus on the goals. Can I just say this one warmed my heart because I was Tandy's SLP as a grad student and here she's commenting about this. So I have... I have seen Tandy's goals, and she does indeed embed AAC in every part of the document. So, thank you. Rachel, to your point, maybe it's not either or. Maybe it's not put it in the accommodations, put it in the goals. Maybe it's a both. Maybe you do want it in both. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I honestly, to Tandy's point, let's put it everywhere. <laughs> I feel like, you know, if that increases our odds that like people are going to be like, oh, AAC, let's use this thing. Great. I'm on board. <laughs> Now, there was there was one little conversation that caught my eye in that thread about um, specifying parent training in the IEP, because one of the responses I thought was interesting that they were afraid to do that because of the parents that couldn't or wouldn't attend. And what would that mean? I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. Still put it in, right? Yeah. Still put it in. If they can't make it, they can't make it. But the, you you put it in and you try. Right. I just, part of my worry there is if you specify that and you've sort of made an argument to administration or whatever about the time included, perhaps it would have been better just to specify training or supports generally so that you could reallocate that time to staff. I mean, maybe that would happen in reality anyway. I'm not really sure, but uh, that's, it's an interesting point. To another point, Lucas, that you made earlier that's been kind of lingering uh, in my brain here is you said, you know, a do not do is write the specific device in the IEP which is cool. That's how we do it. And I agree. But uh, here's the question around that is, what if a kid needs a specific device? You know, kid has been using a device for three or four years. They're, they're, they're more fluent on this device than anything else. And as an accommodation, what we've written is uh, augmentative communication system. Do you know what I mean? And now they move to, they move from LA to Philadelphia and the Philadelphia people are like, uh, what do they use? You know, what system is it? Like, what? No, yeah, we don't use that system here. We want to use something else. Is there some sort of protection you get if you actually write in, maybe not the brand name, but describe it so explicitly that it couldn't be anything else, you know? Picture a, uses a system that has a grid that's eight by 10 using symbols that relate to core vocabulary that, you know, I don't know, you know. Yeah. Or that retains, retains a grid format consistent with his learned motor plan or something like that. I think there's ways, I think there's probably ways to do that. I mean, one way that I've done that in the past is simply to write like a device 
as you know as mutually agreed to by school and home or something you know something just so it's like it can be sort of a, a broader conversation that's hinted to there but um you I mean you raise a very good point uh, and i have seen that happen yeah i would hate for it to be super general is what i'm saying and is that something where writing the specific device in the present level summary would be at least I mean, helpful if they're moving school districts or states or something like that. So at yeah, least it's like, can, oh, I see, I see lamp in here. Um, it doesn't write it in the, you know, obviously I know it's not good to write it in the, in the goals and things like that. Cause then we're locked into a specific system that may or may not be the same or we want to change it. But um, at least just providing a present level summary as to like, they are using the system or, or maybe not even you could use the specific system, but also you could also just talk about, you know, like you were saying, specific grid size with icon base symbols and things like that. So there's lots of different places that you might be able to put something like that in. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, I, I keep coming back to this idea of just putting that, that adequately addresses the access and learned, you know, needs of this child or whatever. But even that is sort of amorphic, right? Because who determines that? Is that implying there's another assessment or something along those lines? I mean, I think a lot of that comes back to, you know, advocacy. But as we all know, I mean, there's so many hours in the day, right? And for, you know, parents and educators, both are so put upon, it can be it can be easy to lose track of things. So I keep it simple, I guess. But um, but in, in that situation where there is such a specific need, I mean, you might be able to sway my mind <laughs> away from my don't. Well, something to consider, Rachel, about putting in the present level of academic performance is that maybe if it's written, no matter where it's written in, then you're tied to it. It doesn't matter where you wrote it. I mean, uh, I've heard that argued both ways uh, from different advocates and different lawyers saying, yeah, you wrote it in. It doesn't matter whether it was in the accommodations or the goal or the present level. And so now you've stated that's what the kid is using. But we, yeah, but we put it in the present level saying that's, what, that's not what they need. What we need is the accommodations. And the lawyers come back and say, it's in the IEP. Everything in the IEP is what the student needs. I, you know. I'm not a lawyer, so I can't say, but uh, we have been shy. I have been shying away from putting it anywhere and being more descriptive about what the student needs as opposed to explicitly stating the, the app, you know? Yeah, if there's, if there's a, a, a situation where that could cause some sort of legal implication, I think that makes a lot of sense. Having been on the receiving end of a lot of transfer paperwork and those sorts of things, I always appreciate some specificity when I'm doing lesson planning. But, um, you know, we have... We have raised at least as many questions as we've answered uh, in this conversation, I would say. But that's good news because it shows how important this conversation is, and we would like to pick it up. So um, we will definitely do a round two of this, uh, addressing more around the IEP and around goals. Um, we would love to hear from you around what questions you might have from this or in general. Um, you can track us out on Facebook, uh, Talking With Tech. Uh, if you search for us there, um, you can find us. You can also go to talkingwithtech.net to find our fancy new website, uh, which is all coming together and very spiffy. Thanks so much to the team at, at XED and also to Luke Padgett, our fantastic producer, for pulling this all together. And meanwhile, I think there's like a, a review thing you can do, right? There is. You guys, we're trying to get to 100 reviews by the end of the year. And I'm trying to find right now how many we have currently. Um, the last time I checked, we had 50. And I'm hoping that we have more. Um, because I really just, I'm determined, you guys. I'm determined to get to at least 100. And that all starts with you guys. So if you could just go on, take a few moments after uh, this podcast ends and tell us what you think. You can just click on rating and reviews 
give us however many stars you'd like. We love reading the comments. So if you have something to share, we would love to read it and we would just be so appreciative. So please, please, please leave us a review if you haven't already. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, once again, this is Luke Stuber for Chris Begay and Rachel Madel. Uh, this has been Talking With Tech. We'll talk to you all next week. You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.